0: What's the passage, Chris? I'm glad you practiced it. There it is right there.
1: There we go. You can read it off there if you you want. I mean, okay, I'll just pretend. Uh, But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you... Oh, I just read that, didn't I? I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. On not loving the world, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world... Uh, Love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever.
0: Beautiful. Well done. (laughs) Beautiful, sir. On Friday night, Meryl and I went to watch the movie, Jesus' Revolution. Any of you seen it, just out of interest? Okay. And uh, it was a belated one. We actually found a super cool little hole-in-the-wall restaurant up in L.A. that we had lunch at. And um, I, uh, we, we made the call to just go and check it out. I'm not a fan of Christian movies, generally. But I don't know, there was a certain compulsion to go and check it out. And I'm asking you to go and view it. For me personally, it was a time of fun historical reminders of what happened. It was a time of deep reflection, and I'll explain this in just a moment. And then there were times where I wept and even sobbed, where I felt my whole body shake and I had to hold it together. Now you may be asking, why, Chris, why did that happen if you want to understand Merrill and I, you will understand at least part of us by viewing that, because that was us in the 70s. It was 1976, I was 19 years old, December of that year, that I gave my life to Christ not dissimilar to that. It was March 1977 that Merrill gave her life to Christ at a youth event in brackets that I spoke at. It was during that time that we discovered the amazing power of a gospel that redeems us. We got radically saved, to use the language of the day. I mean radically saved. It wasn't a slip sliding into kind of a Christianity. It was an all in, 100%, you gave your all to the Jesus who loved you so deeply and so wonderfully. It was a time where we lived in communal houses. It was a time where we preached on the streets. And as you will see in the movie where they give out Greg Laurie's tracts, we too gave out tracts on the streets of Durban and the beachfront of Durban. It was a time when people came to faith, and it was not uncommon for us to lead people into a living faith. I led worship just like that. I looked at my guitar this afternoon, played it a little as I was prepping to come this evening. I was abandoned like Greg Laurie was by people who didn't understand me nor the call of God upon my life. And and I didn't. But you see, to understand us and where we come from is to understand the radical nature of the times that we got saved into. When Lonnie gets up in the movie, and I had the privilege of meeting him in South Africa, leading worship for him, as it would turn out. And when he reminded us of, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed will not perish, but have everlasting life. It made sense to us. Right there. It made sense to us that God loved us. We had to be loved by God. We were not sure that we were lovable. We had to have this gospel preached to us. That's why I can't even say it in the NIV. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. The Son who God loved. He gave that Son to whoever believed that we would not perish. The incredible relief, dear friends, that there was a life after this life and a life with this life. It wasn't just all about eternity. It wasn't just all about Larry Norman singing One Way, One Way to Heaven. But it also meant that we pick up our cross and we follow Him. That this gospel, this gospel that costs Jesus everything, is free but costs me everything. To understand us is to understand that I, for the sake of humor, put up a picture just a little later of Meryl and I during that time. I think this is what John must have felt, the apostle who wrote this book, this sermon, if you will, that we are spending some time with. Because he too, like I am, I have this deep and feel his deep affection when I read through this book it's affectionately called I feel his soul driven urgency wanting to ensure that the next Jesus lovers you would continue the story of Christ's redemption and like John I feel this connection that you would get the essential truths that these are the things that matter Can I say softly and with the whisper, thank you for being a gracious church. I know I say things, sometimes intentionally and sometimes inadvertently, that tread on your toes, that offend you. But you see, for me, there is a greater and a higher call. And that greater and higher call is not to placate your political sensibilities, but it's to invite you into a radical Jesus story that will cost you everything. And this I saw. Those who said yes to this radical life have stayed, have run the race, have stayed till the end. But those who flirted with a little bit of Jesus and splashed it with a whole lot of immorality lived an incredibly distasteful life. And they were always unhappy and always needed counseling and always needed prayer. But those for whom this gospel, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Though we struggled like everyone else, there is a deep inner joy that is acquainted with the privilege of redemption. I think, and forgive my imagination, but I think John is pacing the floor, his sight is limited, his voice probably scratchy, he's probably in his late 90s bent over as we tend to do, pacing up and down as someone writes this thing out. Possibly the, the, the cyclic repetition is there because he is an old guy, but also because he really wants the point to be made. I think it's a profound book for us, dear friends, I don't know if we'll get to the second part tonight. The more I've been praying for our time, the more I thought let's just do a little bit better and leave and we'll see if we can do some more next Sunday. I want to take this passage that we've read and just talk about the journey to maturity with a heart of deep empathy, affection, and a desire to impart this gospel radicalism to you. A healthy community has three generations. That's why we're not healthy yet. It has the little children, the new converts, those who are new to Jesus' followership or apprenticeship, as John Mark taught us. Then there are those youngsters, and I'll talk about these things in just a moment, who are full of radical energy and passionate about Jesus and want to change the world, and the world they will change. And then there are the fathers, the mothers. We have a a high responsibility, as we'll see in just a moment, to bring continuity to the story. But it's also true, I want to suggest, that all of us will go through all three stages. We will all evolve from being little children. That incredibly emotive language, beautiful language that John uses. We will all go through that young adolescent stage of spiritual maturity, and then we will all, we hope, Posture ourselves where, like me, you will stand or sit where we stand or sit one day, looking across the room at these young men and women and these kids that run around here so passionately and implore them to this great call. Little children, firstly. He calls them to two things. That your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. There they are. And because you know the Father. That's what he says. Young Jesus lovers, those of you who are new to the faith, these are the two things he says with such empathy and such passion. He says, these are the two things you've just got to get right. I was 1920 when I was the leader of a commune. And there was a man who was about six foot four, weighed about 280 pounds. He'd done time in prison for killing a man in a street fight. And John used to follow me around wherever I went. I was a student still at the time. And he would say, no, Chris, Chris, we've got to talk now. We've got to talk. Do you think God can forgive me for killing that man? I said, John, sit down. Let's have coffee. Because the longing of his heart was to know that his sins were forgiven in the name of Jesus. Every sin, your sins, ever-present tense, which means not just the past sins, but the now sins. It's absolutely imperative that we discover the incredible power of forgiveness. Dear friends, if you are always pondering and pontificating around your sins, you have not understood the gospel. You've not understood steps one. Your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. Our meandering and cyclic repetition of sin is because we just don't get it that every sin, your sin, ever present tense, fully and unconditionally, are forgiven because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. He is our atoning sacrifice and He is our advocate. Now, advocate doesn't translate well in America because we use other legal language. In South Africa, advocate is that lawyer that is by credential and qualification, able to represent cases to the Supreme Court. It's the highest legal person. And so what is written in the scripture is that Jesus is not only my atoning sacrifice, but he is my advocate. He is advocating on my behalf. Do you know how that changed me? When I, as a 19 and 20 year old, full of the stench of sin... when I saw the unfolding narrative of Jesus in a court of law, a legal moment, not an emotional moment, a legal moment where he, and I'm going to use this, negotiates on my behalf, I will take Christ's sin upon myself and he will take my righteousness. And dear friends, more than almost anything else, when I saw that moment, Jesus in a court of law representing me but taking my sin upon himself. It was that moment that sealed that I would walk with Jesus for the rest of my days. And if I can be graciously bold, I've never backslidden. I've never doubted because I saw that. Other things I've doubted, things I've not understood. Yes, of course I have. But I've always known that my sins are forgiven for his name's sake Jesus said this is the blood my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins that is covenantal language I'm covenanted to you I will take your sin I will take your sin young lady why is it so hard find forgiveness because of the sin your body carries the stain that shadows your every thought he's advocating on your behalf he has placed upon himself the stain can I just stay there for a moment you know much of my theology is shaped by my imagination. In other words, I have, I'm anchored in theology, but then I see it. And when I understood this, I understood why on the cross, when Jesus was hanging there, it was arguably the most dastardly moment in all of eternity and time when he cried out in Aramaic, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. I think my accent is okay. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only time the father who's in perfect union with his son turned his back on his son and he walked away. Why have you turned your back against me and why have you left me here to die? That's why I'm persuaded. The cross took it for me and the cross took it for you, if you don't understand that Christianity becomes this philosophical base of moralizing and argumentation, oh, can we believe this? Should we believe this? Is Christianity progressive? Is it Orthodox? If we don't understand this, the rest is playing with words. There's no foundation of freedom that I have because my sins have been fully washed away. Every sin, all the sins. Now, I would trust tonight that if we and when we come to the table, and I know that in the, in, in the biblical times, the New Testament times, it was a meal, but this is what we have tonight. Next Sunday, we have a charteuxerie experience. We're bringing these great boards in with wine, and we're going to break bread with cheese and salami. A man of the congregation had a friend commit suicide last week. And I called him to see how he was doing. Very tender. He said this. He said, the problem with my friend, he said, is he had, and I quote, nowhere to put his shame. So he took his life. He had nowhere to put his shame. There's only one place our shame goes, and that's the cross. It's the only place. No negotiation, no debate. It's at the cross. And when he couldn't put his shame at the cross, he overdosed. But you see, you can't hide your shame. You can't deaden your shame. You can't have drugs or alcohol or sex or pornography or anything that you try, uh, shopping, anything that you try to to douse that. It just doesn't do it because there's only one person And one place where there is full atoning and full forgiveness. And that, dear friend, is at the cross. And I learned that December 1976 when I knelt at the cross. This broken teenager who just failed his first year at college. Jesus, could you take someone like me? Why do you think these things are so emotional for me? Is it because I feel? It's Surely after 46 years, you should stop feeling them. No, this is not a feeling. It is a legally declared moment of sinful exchange. He took my sin upon himself. Little children, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And secondly, because you know the Father. Very briefly, the Father is the foundation. He is the eternal, immutable, sovereign God. I'm not going to comment on that, but I'm going to read this to you. 1 John 3, 1. See what great love the Father has lavished. See what great love the Father has has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. See the great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. Why are we called the children of God? Because God has lavished us with His love and that is what we are. We are lavished with His love. Fathers, secondly... John is speaking to his peers, and interestingly enough, twice he says exactly the same thing. That's why, Johnny, you said, haven't I just read it? Well, you had, except it says it again. Because you know him who is from the beginning. Can I say two very simple things? Because I want to get to young men. Very simply, I think he's referring to, firstly... The understanding of the great redemptive narrative from Genesis through to Revelation. I remember hearing Tim Mackey give that for the first time in about, I don't know, 15 minutes or something. And I sat there gobsmacked as I saw the incredible weaving of the redemption story of God that I know Him who is from the beginning. From the beginning there was redemption in mind. From the beginning, there's one story using different characters and different moments written over 1,500 years. But there's one story. Him who is from the beginning. But then secondly, fathers tell our story. Tonight we've got a dinner for some of the new people at our home and I will tell the story of God's kindness, goodness, generosity as He has walked us down this path. But let me get thirdly because I do want to just spend a little bit of time, not much, and we'll leave the second half to later. Young men. Can I just say this, young ladies? Please don't think this is a gender-biased Bible. I was mulling over that this week, knowing I was going to preach on it, listening to other preachers who preach on it, because I like not just hearing my own thoughts and perspectives. And I remembered this. And in the last days, which is now, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. This is a new social order. This is a new kingdom being established with Jesus. Jesus broke every protocol by engaging women in his story. The woman that walked with them The three Marys particularly were given the incredible honor to be the ones who preached the first gospel. Mary ran back after seeing the empty tomb and she proclaimed the great resurrection message. She burst into the room, sweating, huffing and puffing. And they probably said, Mary, what are you doing? Why are you sweating? And she said, he has risen. First time the resurrection message was preached by a woman, by God's divine intent, he was making a point. It wasn't one of the 12, one of the head honchos. It was by a woman whose sins had been forgiven, who had followed Jesus and prayed at the foot of the cross as she watched his blood drip away and his final breath being given up. And he said, I'm going to give her the opportunity to preach the first gospel. Jesus is not against woman. This gospel taught well empowers woman, does not weaken woman. He spent so much time with woman when he as a rabbi should not have. The woman caught in the act of adultery for whom he offered such compassion and empathy. The woman at the well whom he called out by a word of knowledge saying, No, this man you're living with is not your husband, but you've already had five, I think it was. The woman who touched his garment so against protocol. How dare a bleeding woman touch a rabbi? Who touched me? He said. He gave women dignity, respect. He gave them authority. He gave them a voice. He gave them an assignment. They were absolutely essential to what the church needed to do. Paul similarly drew these women into the world, honoring Phoebe the deaconess in Romans 16. Luke writes about Philip the evangelist and his four daughters who prophesied. And a a theological paper crossed my desk this week called The Woman Who Taught the Apostle. Her name Priscilla, the apostle's name Apollos. (sighs) To you, John's message is, you have overcome the evil one. You are strong. The word of God abides in you and you will overcome the evil one. He says it again. Now, dear friends, and I will be as quick as I can so we can get to the table. I know that any military metaphor is viewed with some caution by many of you. I understand that. But that does not eradicate the fact that we are in the frontline war and you are called to combat. You are called to holy combat. I remember going into East Germany just after the wall came down, meeting with pastors who had lived under the persecution of the Stasi, who was their uh, security police. And they said, you know, Chris, when we were East Germany, we knew who our enemy was. It was the Stasi. We hid from them. We had Christians in there who got us out, who who told us they were coming to arrest us, to persecute us. We knew who our enemy was, but when the wall came down, they said the problem was the enemy came around us. We were surrounded. We did not know which way to turn. We did not know who our foe was. Every generation, dear friends, has an enemy to fight on behalf of the kingdom. To some extent, I fought mine. Paul said, I've run my race. I fought my fight. My generation was to fight racism. I don't know if we did a good job. But that was a primary call that rested on our shoulders. Having said all of that, can I draw our attention for a moment to the young men? When David, are you with you with me? Forgive my passion and intensity. These things are weighing on me. When David went to hand over the leadership or the kingship to Solomon in 1 Kings 2, he said this, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong, son, and show yourself a man. Show yourself a man. Now, I don't have time to develop what it means to show yourself a man, assuming I even know. But you have to. You have to know. Because upon your shoulders, young men, lies the very, nat- the very nature of manhood and the responsibility that it brings. You are, you are cluttered by the noises on the one hand of traditional manhood. Not biblical, traditional, and they're different. You are cluttered by the sounds of what, awoke, what manhood looks like in a woke society, of toxic masculinity, of no manhood at all. We're all just who we feel we should be. But you, sir, and you, sir, if Greg Laurie planted a church at 20 and accepted on his shoulders the responsibility of a movement at a 20-year-old who had not studied a day. He said in an interview I watched yesterday, he said, I had to find my theology en route. I had to find my theology en route. And there's nothing special about us. You, sir, you young men, according to John's call, have the responsibility to put the bride of Jesus onto your shoulders. Can I be a little more courageous and say, no more hiding behind all the wokedom or the traditionalism as an excuse to not take that on your shoulders. Someone said, Mark Sayers said recently, he said, the problem with the millennials is they're suddenly having to do boomer things. Yes, sir, you will. Like get married, like have kids, like have a home, like repair things. (laughs) Yep, 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 yep. All that other millennialisms will dwindle as you face some boomer things, which probably will offend the heck out of you. But I'm asking you tonight by biblical appeal to show yourself a man, meaning put the bride of Jesus onto your shoulders and carry her. Take the responsibility for the well-being of a community by the life you live and the words you speak and the actions you exert and the uh, spiritual disciplines that you adhere to. Put her on your shoulders. As a dad of daughters, I cannot tell you how many times these little pitter-patter of feet and the hands that were thrown up and said, Dad, can I go on your shoulders? They never asked Meryl that. There's something about the biblical mandate we have to put on our shoulders. Why is it the tradition of a groom picking a bride up and crossing, back in the day, crossing the, what is it, the threshold? Is it just cute? Is it just romantic? Or is there something else that drives the very image? Is it, is it more than romance? Or your children where you pick them up and you put them on your shoulders? Three little verses, and I'll try and land pretty soon, from Zechariah. Zechariah 9.12. It says, when, then, uh, re- here we go. Where, which one have I got up there? Okay, 10.7. I'll, I'll read 9. I'll read 9. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Young men, we are prisoners of hope. Tian calls me an irrational optimist. I take that. I am an irrational optimist. But I will live because the gospel has given me hope. Not my personality, not my sense of of, uh, whatever Myers-Briggs, I don't even know what I'm supposed to be. But the gospel has captivated my heart with hope. I can never surrender to despair or depression or being downcast as a lifestyle because the gospel seeds me with hope. Faith, hope, and love is what Paul called us to. Then that verse Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior. Like a mighty warrior. Young man, show yourself a man. Be strong. And their hearts will be glad as with wine. And most of you know what that means. Don't look piously at me. Your hearts shall be glad as with wine. Here it comes. Their children will see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because the men have become mighty warriors show me kids whose fathers have fought for them and i will show you happy kids joyous kids a prophetic statement of kids playing in the streets because i know my pops he will fight on my behalf i know my my husband he will fight on my behalf i know my brother he will fight on my behalf that's not a thing that gets taught It's a thing we do. Jeremiah 12.5. Eugene Peterson says, So Jeremiah, if you're worn out in this foot race with men, what makes you think you can race with the horses? And if you can't keep your wits during times of calm." What's going to happen when trouble breaks out like the Jordan in flood? If you're worn out in the foot race with men, what makes you think you can race against horses? And if you can't keep your wits during times of calm, what's going to happen when troubles break loose like the Jordan in flood? Young men, it's time to be strong. And it's time to show yourself a man. You say, Chris, I don't know what that means. No one taught me. We well, have to find out. You have to push through the clutter and the complexities of people's opinions and dive into the book one personality at a time. One story at a time. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, David, Solomon, Daniel, Jeremiah, Zechariah, Micah, one person at a time, Peter, Paul, John. Why? Because the bride depends on it. His bride. My bride. Merrill needs to know that I will lay down my life for her. I will fight for her and her, on her behalf. That's not a romantic conversation. It's an actual conversation conversation. My kids needed to know dad would lay down his life for them. Young men, be strong and show yourself a man. Would you close your eyes with me? Take a moment quietly. I don't pretend to know what God would speak to you about tonight. So why don't we just have a few moments of quiet? I want to ask you this. If you don't have that conviction of salvation that your sins are forgiven in His name's sake, and you don't know the Father, you're curious, but you don't know. There's no sense of certainty in your heart. You listen to me and you say, surely that can't be true. That's too dramatic. That's preacher talk. I want to say to you tonight, you can, you can, you can know. While our eyes are closed, I don't know why I'm doing this, but I want to give you opportunity to just slip your hand up and say, Chris, would you pray with me or would someone pray with me? Because I need that certainty. I need to know my sins, all my sins have been taken from me now. I've tried to find ways to hide shame, but I I've tried. But shame doesn't leave me. Would you just put up your hands where you're seated? Okay. The Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. It was a normal meal. And he broke it, which is why we have chunks of bread. For those who don't know, there is gluten-free crackers, and there's wine, and there's grape juice. But he took bread, and he broke it. And in a moment of great prophetic intent, he said, this is my body broken for you. And he said, take, eat. And if that wasn't... Beautiful enough, the residue of that declaration was seen at an empty tomb when Mary ran, held to skelter back to see the boys, sweating, losing the dignity of a womanhood to get there to tell them, He is risen. The table is finished, as it were, at an empty tomb. It's not simply the reflection of sin. It's the proclamation of Resurrection. He took the bread and he broke it and he said, This is my body. Take, eat. And Lord Jesus, we do that tonight. And the impassioned heart that I feel about the weight and wonder of this redemption, we do it in your name's sake because you have forgiven me of every one of my sins. And I eat. In the fullness of that freedom. And he took the cup that was poured. Because if forgiveness was not enough dear friends. Oh I love this. Oh I love this. He brought the divine detergent his holy blood. And he said this is to cleanse you. This is to cleanse you. Father, I pray that whatever it is that is the stain of sin on bruised souls tonight, that we don't fulfill some religious duty or obligation, but based on the empty tomb, we can say, yes, that he who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in my mortal body. He will raise me from the dead too. Take eat. Take drink. Do this in remembrance of Him. We're going to do it individually tonight. Sometimes we do it in groups. We'll release you in rows. You can take a piece of bread and a grape juice or a wine and go and sit down. The musos are going to sing and play over us. Just use the moment. And let God, by His glorious Spirit, make real that which has been words tonight. Amen. First row, please. Thanks, team.